Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. True North True Crime is now available on Patreon. You can now listen to exclusive bonus episodes, early release episodes, and ad-free episodes by signing up at patreon.com slash tntcpod. This podcast contains graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the territories of the Coast Salish people. In today's world, we are bombarded with opinions, whether it be comment sections on social media, watching a political debate, the news we consume while we eat dinner. No longer does it seem that humanity is able to come together to work on our differences. Instead, much of society is plagued with an us-versus-them mindset. On the sides of every debate, there seems to be villains and heroes. This changes depending on where you stand. Some folks are too far one way and some folks are too far the other, while most sit quietly in the middle, hoping for some peace, some togetherness, and an end to feeling divided. The figures we elect who should be leading and unifying seem to revel in name-calling and stoking the fires of division. But what happens when people go too far? What happens when someone becomes consumed in their rage, their perceived righteousness, and thinks taking matters into their own hands is the only solution? Tonight we present the shooting at the Metropolis, and you are listening to True North True Crime. Hello, everyone, and welcome to True North True Crime. Thanks for joining us. We just wanted to give a quick reminder that we are now on Patreon. So if you're looking for more True North True Crime, head on over to patreon.com slash tntcpod. If you're new to our show, we are a two-person team building these episodes from start to finish with the goal of raising awareness for missing people and victims of violent crime. We focus primarily on cases that affect Canadians, and we do prioritize cases that come to us directly from family members or close contacts of cases. So if you need some help getting the word out about a case that affects you, 
please reach out to us at truenorthtruecrime at gmail.com. Just a warning before we get into tonight's episode, we want to preemptively apologize for pronouncing any French names incorrectly. Neither of us are confident French speakers, but we're going to do the best we can to give it a try. All right, with that being said, let's get into this episode. So tonight we are talking about a 2012 shooting that occurred in Montreal on the evening of the provincial election. This act of violence was politically motivated. One person, David Courage, was injured as a result of the shooting. He lives with life-altering injuries to this day. And another man, Denis Blanchette, was murdered. Neither of the victims were politically affiliated. They were just hard-working individuals doing their jobs when the shooting took place, which is what makes this case all the more tragic. We put this episode together using publicly available court documents and news articles. Now, while this attack was politically motivated, this episode is not. Our intention is to lay out the facts of this case as a matter of public interest. As an additional content warning, this episode contains descriptions of gun violence. So as just mentioned, this case takes place in Montreal, Quebec. For those unfamiliar, Montreal is one of the most unique, creative, artistic, and beautiful cities in all of Canada. Montreal is the second most populous city in Canada, having about 1.8 million residents with a metro area of 4.3 million. French is the official language of Montreal, with 80% of its residents feeling strongly that they can communicate in French. The city itself is stunning, with old-world architecture meeting new-world buildings. You can find funky coffee shops, retailers, clubs, bars, and restaurants. So there is an important aspect of life in the province of Quebec that needs to be mentioned in order to understand what led up to the shooting in Montreal. We admit that we have a cursory knowledge of this landscape, but we will attempt to explain it in a brief summary. In the past, there have been differing opinions on how Quebec should be governed with regards to culture, language, and politics. Much of this debate centered around language. There are differing views on the protection of the French language in Quebec. In the 60s, and at the extreme end of the debate, there was an organization known as Front de Libération du Québec, otherwise known as the FLQ. At the time, they were deemed a terrorist organization by the government of Canada. From 1963 to 1970, they carried out 160 violent incidents that killed eight people and injured many more. This included bombings and a kidnapping. At its height, the movement drew great support from younger college-educated people. The mission of the FLQ was for a socialist insurrection against English-speaking oppression. They also demanded an overthrow of the Quebec government, as well as a total separation of Quebec from Canada. When the violence erupted and people lost their lives, the FLQ lost their popularity, and many of their members were arrested. By the mid-70s, they were no longer a thing. However, since then, Quebec has had two public referendums, which asked the public to vote as to whether Quebec should separate from Canada and become its own sovereign state. In 1980, a vote occurred with 60% of the population rejecting the concept and stating that they would prefer to remain in Canada. Then, in 1995, another public vote was held as to whether Quebec should separate from Canada. This time, the vote was much closer, 
with 49.4% of voters saying yes to separation and 50.6% saying no, that they would prefer to remain in Canada. After those days of political unrest, life in Quebec changed a lot. Over the past three decades, there is very little talk of separation. In fact, while Quebec remains primarily a French-speaking province, it is actually a very diverse and welcoming place, with many people speaking multiple languages from many backgrounds. Today, Quebec is a French-speaking province and also still remains part of Canada. This is why this case is so perplexing and tragic. It is a fact that this old debate of days gone by was used as an excuse for murder. The victim in this case was 48-year-old Denis Blanchette. Denis was a father and a well-respected man in his community. Denis was a stagehand and lighting technician in the close-knit world of live event staff in Montreal. For those unaware, stagehands are the lifeblood and foundation of the arts, whether it be a film set, a theater production, music festival, concert, or conference, stagehands are the unsung heroes of the arts. The many people who knew Denis praised him as a hardworking, humble man who was an amazing teammate and colleague. As stagehands work odd hours, often into the wee hours of the morning, Denis' co-workers remember many an early morning beer and smoke together to celebrate a job well done after a long night tearing down a venue. For his job, Denis made about $15 an hour. We mentioned this to illustrate that he was just a regular, working-class person making ends meet in an industry that he loved. Another thing to know about Denis is that he was not political. And this is what makes this case all the more heartbreaking. The perpetrator in this case is 65-year-old Henry Bain. In 2012, Henry Bain was an English-speaking man living in Montreal. Leading up to 2008, Henry seemed like a pretty regular guy. He worked at a copper refinery called CCR Refinery. At the refinery, he worked as a foreman. His colleagues stated that he was a great boss, one of the best at the plant. He was very popular amongst the staff and well-respected. But in 2008, there was a lockout at the refinery and all of the employees were out of work for a while. When Henry came back to work after the lockout, his colleagues noticed a shift in him. He was more distant and then retired quickly afterwards. It was around this time that friends and neighbors noticed changes in Henry. Some stated that he was talkative but distant and that his body language and speech changed dramatically. He had also become paranoid of the possible H1N1 pandemic. And it was then that his behavior bordered on delirium. A former neighbor stated that Bain's character changed in 2009. He said that Bain became deeply religious and at the same time spent huge amounts of money, well above his means, and always seemed to have ambitious ideas. Others stated that Bain's became over the top. It was noticed that he began to purchase guns, ammo, and bulletproof vests. Bain's brother Robert stated that he too saw changes in his brother's personality which he blamed on the antidepressants he was taking at the time. Henry Bain's doctor acknowledges that he had been treating Bain since the 90s, and in that he had prescribed Bain's with an antidepressant to treat symptoms of depression. Then in 2009, the doctor switched up Bain's medication. However, the doctor stopped the prescription when he learned that Bain was self-medicating using his old meds. The doctor stated that Bain began acting manic and became fixated on the possible H1N1 pandemic. Eventually, 
Bain bought a horse ranch in the Laurentian Mountains in a village known as La Concepcion. It was here that he started to have grandiose ideas and began spending large sums of money. He bought the horse ranch for 140,000 Canadian dollars. This was a surprise to many as it was unclear if he had any connection to horses. Bain wanted to turn the property into a tourist lodge. He believed that people would pay him to live and fish on his property. In fact, he spent $96,000 on a road that led to the property. He also talked about building a helipad. At this point, he had not applied for any permits that would make the lodge idea even happen. Bain asked his doctor to come out to a different ranch to check on a friend of his. Bain paid a limo driver to shuttle the doctor from his home to the ranch. He also stated that the actors Catherine Zeta-Jones and Michael Douglas would be there. They, of course, were not. While the doctor was there, Henry's close friend shared with the doctor that he was concerned that Bain had begun to stockpile guns, ammo, and canned food in preparation for the H1N1 pandemic. It was at this time that the doctor changed Henry Bain's prescription again. For a time, Bain seemed to get better. In 2012, Quebec was set to have a general provincial election to decide the leadership of the province. The Liberal Party of Quebec had enjoyed a 10-year reign as the governing party, but the polls showed that people were looking for a change. Led by Jean Charest, the PLQ had won the election in 2003, 2007, and 2008. But there was another party gaining popularity. Many young people were unhappy in the province, especially college-aged voters who were dealing with student loan debt. The Quebec Party, or Parti Québécois, was led by Pauline Marois. If elected, she would become the first female premier in the province's history. Her party was traditionally a sovereigntist party. They believed that Quebec should live as a sovereign, independent state inside of Canada with a shared economy. This concept apparently infuriated Henry Bain, and he became very involved in consuming the election campaign through news outlets. Henry had decided that if Quebec separated from Canada, that Montreal should separate from Quebec. His idea was that Montreal should be its own state inside of Quebec, and that Quebec would be its own state inside of Canada. In this idea, he wanted Montreal to be bilingual, even though Quebec would be entirely francophone. It's interesting to note that while the Parti Québécois has in the past spoken of independence, that they were not pushing this during the election. They were more focused on student loans and the cost of living. On September 4, 2012, the general election was held. Voters turned out to the polls in strong numbers, but it was anyone's game. Pauline Machois and the Parti Québécois booked their election night party at the Metropolis on St. Catherine Street in downtown Montreal. The Metropolis is a 2,000-person amphitheater and concert venue with general admission floor space and seating areas. It's a perfect venue for an election night gala. Denis Blanchette was not scheduled to work that night at the venue, although he had worked there many times. But in the daytime on September 4th, Denis was asked if he could cover someone at the venue. He agreed and got ready for work. After he finished with setup, he would stay until the late night until the party ended. At that point, they would take down the staging and rigging and close the venue. This was something that Denis and his fellow stagehands had done thousands of times. In fact, this would be a relatively easy teardown as it wasn't a giant concert. It was just a simple election party. 
But what Denis and friends would not know is that they would become targets of a man with complex mental health issues who would target the venue in an act of terrorism. During the day on September 4th, 2012, Henry Bain attempted to vote at a local voting station. An elections official told him that he was not able to vote there as he was registered to vote in a different riding. Bain told the worker that he was, quote, known in the region as a great hunter. While at home, Henry Bain took an electric drill and used it to remove the restrictive rivets on the magazines fitting his rifles. This increased the magazine capacity from five rounds to 30 rounds. Bain loaded his vehicle with weapons and made his way to Montreal. At around 6 p.m., he visited the Royal Victoria Hospital to see his brother's wife. Upon leaving the hospital around 6.30, he inquired as to where the metropolis was located. A few minutes later, various surveillance cameras captured Bain's vehicle circling the metropolis. A stage technician also noticed a vehicle resembling Bain's driving past the metropolis before the street was closed to traffic at 7 p.m. for the party. After circling the venue several times, Bain parked his vehicle in the lot that was adjacent to the back entrance of the metropolis. He sat there for hours, listening to election results on CBC radio. Just after 11 p.m. that night, the polls showed that the Parti Québécois had won a minority government and that Pauline Marois was the first woman ever to be elected the premier of Quebec. Her limousine made its way to the metropolis, where she was set to make her victory speech. Henry Bain is said to have seen Pauline Marois enter the metropolis. While still seated in his vehicle, he put on a black balaclava. He was wearing a royal blue bathrobe with white stripes. He left his vehicle and walked across the parking lot towards the back door of the metropolis, armed with a semi-automatic rifle, a handgun, an extra magazine clip, a gasoline canister, and flares. We are now going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. And we are back. So before the break, we outlined the political landscape in Quebec in 2012. It wasn't really a particularly contentious election by today's standards. It in fact was quite tame. But one man had decided to take things into his own hands and write what he thought was a wrong. But what he did next would change the lives of normal working class everyday people for the rest of their lives. Henry Bain was struggling with a mental health diagnosis that even confused his own doctor. He had been prescribed multiple medications to try to help him, but he wasn't taking them properly. In fact, he was medicating with his own concoction. He began stockpiling weapons, and on the night of the Quebec provincial election, he chose to commit an act of domestic terrorism. Henry Bain sat in his vehicle parked behind the metropolis. He was wearing a royal blue bathrobe with white stripes and a black balaclava covering his face. He grabbed multiple firearms and walked across the parking lot towards the back door. Inside of the metropolis was the leader of the Parti Québécois and her supporters. As Pauline Marois took stage to give her victory speech, outside the back door of the venue, some stage crew were having a smoke and a quiet moment away from the party. One of those stage hands was Denis Blanchette, a lighting technician who wasn't even supposed to work that night. Another man, 27-year-old David Courage, was also enjoying the night air and some quiet time away from the guests. The mood was light among the group of stagehands when they suddenly noticed a masked man emerge between two vehicles parked behind the club. It is believed that Denis Blanchette saw Henry Bain approach. Denis stepped forward in front of one of his colleagues. He was not threatening, he simply stepped forward to see what the man wanted. With Henry Bain wearing a bathrobe and a mask, it hardly seemed like it could be real or a threat. Henry Bain approached the back entrance took aim with his rifle, and fired on the group of people standing near the stairway. He managed to fire only a single shot before his weapon jammed. Suddenly, many of the stagehands heard a loud detonation, and someone in the group yelled, Run! The bullet that was fired fatally wounded Denis Blanchette and seriously injured Dave Courage. The other people standing outside the door fled the scene. Unable to use his rifle further, Bane proceeded to place a gasoline canister in the stairway. Alerted to the scene, a police officer spotted Bain as he was about to set a fire and yelled, Police! at him. Bain ignored him and lit a flare. He tossed it at the canister and began to flee the scene. The flare ignited the gasoline and set the stairway ablaze. Chaos erupted inside of Metropolis, and Pauline Machois was whisked away to safety during a live television broadcast. Outside of the venue, an officer gave chase on foot. During the foot chase, Bain drew a loaded 9mm pistol on the officer and tried to shoot. The pistol did not fire as no bullet was loaded. The officer tackled Bain and brought him to the ground. Other officers intervened and arrested Bain on the scene. Bain made several incriminating statements subsequent to his arrest. Both two police officers and media who were present at the metropolis covering the election night rally those statements included yelling, the English are waking up and it's going to be fucking payback, claiming he wanted to assassinate Pauline Machois and kill as many separatists as possible. 
When Bain was arrested, the police found he was in possession of the assault rifle used to kill Blanchette and was found to have a handgun on his person. Another three functioning firearms were found inside Bain's vehicle. Hours after his arrest, Henry Bain claims that he knows nothing of what happened. He told officers that he was ill and he was taken to Royal Victoria Hospital for treatment. The next morning, he became defiant and refused to answer investigators' questions during a second interrogation. Bain was charged with first-degree murder along with 15 other charges related to the shooting attack. A special team of officers were sent out to Bain's property in La Conception. This included a bomb sniffer dog. The team drove up the narrow pothole-filled road leading up to the property. In fact, at one point, they had to abandon their cars as the road was so bad and they made the rest of the journey on foot. But once they arrived at the home, they found a cache of firearms. There was a loaded 12-gauge shotgun at the front door. There were also firearms stashed in the attic. Some were stored in clear plastic bags. Others were packed in cases used to transport hunting rifles. And in another part of the uh, attic, there was a whole collection of guns that were uncovered. There were also military-style wooden crates of ammunition. It needs to be stated here that all of Bain's guns and ammo were legally purchased in Canada and in accordance with Canadian firearms laws. On September 19th, while in custody, Henry Bain made a phone call to a local Montreal radio station while he was in the infirmary at the jail. This call was not made with the consent of his lawyers. During the recorded phone call, Bain spoke for 38 minutes. He refused to talk about the attack, instead choosing to speak about his politics. The radio station chose not to play the entire conversation. Instead, they aired a clip of what they had talked about. In the clip, he identified himself as Henry Bain. He then stated, My vision is that the island of Montreal separates to become its own province, a place where francophones, allophones, and anglophones can live in harmony. When Bain's legal aid lawyers found out about the phone call, they stated that they did not approve of it and that their client was not doing very well. Then, in an even more bizarre twist, Henry Bain also posted recordings and writings to Facebook from prison in April 2013 while awaiting his trial. In one of the recordings, he stated, I wish to say truthfully that I went to Metropolis on September 4, 2012. I went there so that Mahua could not make her speech or have her celebration party. I also went there to bring forth the first version that Montrealers should separate from the separatists by holding a referendum of separation to separate from Quebec and that it forms the new province of Montreal being a bilingual province. Further to the fact, and regrettably, I did not go there to hurt anyone, but we all know that for some people and their families and even my own family and friends, that it ended tragically. This I deeply regret, but this it appears I did not have control over. In another statement, he uses similar language about separation and then states that the people should not be concerned about the case against him and that Jesus Christ will set him free by the jury chosen. During this time, Bain also wrote a stream of letters to the judge that presided over the case. In pretrial hearings, he peppered the judge with questions about the law. Sometimes the judge was patient and answered, but other times the judge admonished Bain for going on long political rants. At this point, the defense indicated that they would enter a plea of not criminally responsible due to diminished capacity. A psychological evaluation was to be held in November of 2012. Bain had two meetings with a psychiatrist. In one of these meetings, he states that his jail cell is bugged with listening devices. 
During these assessments, he told the doctor that his plan was to kill as many separatists as possible. In a written response to some of the psychiatrist's questions, Bain wrote that he had brought four liters of gas for the back door and four liters of gas for the front door and that his plan was to set the back door on fire and then the front. On January 28, 2013, Henry Bain was deemed fit to stand trial. By November of 2014, he had fired multiple lawyers and even tried to represent himself. His legal team did apply for bail. Bain believed that he was not able to properly prepare for his trial from behind bars. At the bail hearing, Bain told the judge that he had overdosed on prescription medication and did not remember the events of the evening. But in December of 2014, the judge made the decision that there would be no bail and that Bain would remain in custody until his trial. The judge further stated that no court of law can condone the use of violence, especially with firearms, to suppress the freedom of speech and expression of anyone, no matter what political party or opinion is involved. Finally, in June of 2016, Henry Bain stood trial for first-degree murder and a host of other charges. The Crown presented their case from June 9th to June 30th. They presented a mountain of evidence that the murder of Denis Blanchet and the shooting at the Metropolis was premeditated and deliberate. This included witness statements, photographs, video evidence, and Henry Bain's own words. The jury was then given a two-week break. Then, on July 18th, 2016, the defense presented their case. The main pillar of their argument was that Henry Bain was not criminally responsible for his actions. They argued that he was mentally unaware of what he had done, and he was suffering from an undiagnosed mental disorder. In fact, Bain himself testified in his defense, stating that he had taken nine pills of his prescription medication Cymbalta that day. However, a toxicologist testified that there were no traces of Cymbalta in the blood samples taken from Bain on the night of the murder. When presented with video evidence of the attack, Bain watched the film and stated that he didn't recognize himself. Quote, it's totally different from my character. All my life, I worked and helped other people. To me, it was the medications. At the center of the trial were the differing opinions of two psychiatrists. The Crown expert, Dr. Watts, claimed that Bain was not delusional or clinically psychotic the night of the shootings. However, the defense's expert, Dr. Allard, said that she disagreed and maintained that Bain's use of antidepressants and an underlying bipolar disorder triggered a manic and psychotic episode. On August 9, 2016, the defense evidence was complete. In total, jurors heard from 48 Crown and 8 defense witnesses over 34 days of testimony. On August 13, 2016, jurors began deliberating tasked with determining whether Bain was not criminally responsible. Then, on August 23, 2016, after the jury had deliberated for 11 days, they reached their verdict. This is actually one of the longest jury deliberations in Canadian history. The jury found that Henry Bain was not guilty of first-degree murder. The jury felt that Denis Blanchet was not the intended target of the shooting and therefore there was no premeditation to murder Denis Blanchet specifically. However, they did find Henry Bain guilty of second-degree murder and guilty on three counts of attempted murder. Next up would be the sentencing. There was no argument as to who committed the offenses, but the judge still needed to take into account Henry Bain and his mental health in his sentencing. 
There was no doubt that Henry Bain would receive a life sentence, but when would his parole eligibility begin? Bain's legal team argued that a 10-year parole eligibility was acceptable. However, the Crown pushed for 20 to 25 years. In his sentencing document, the judge wrote, quote, The issue in this case is to what extent the mental condition of Mr. Bain on September 4, 2012 should be a relevant factor in fixing the period of parole ineligibility. As noted before, Mr. Bain presented a defense of not criminally responsible on account of a mental disorder. He was acquitted of first-degree murder, but found guilty of second-degree murder. The judge weighed out previous case law, as well as 20 aggravating factors and only four mitigating factors. The aggravating factors included the political nature of the offenses, which he deemed as an assault on our democratic process. In the judge's mitigating factors, he listed the fact that Henry Bain was a first-time offender and that he had expressed remorse for what he had done. At the end of the document, the judge wrote, On the count of second-degree murder, the court sentences Richard Henry Bain to life imprisonment without eligibility for parole until he has served 20 years of that sentence. And on the three counts of attempted murder, the court sentences Richard Henry Bain to life imprisonment. In the days after the shooting, official condemnation of the act was swift. Then Prime Minister Stephen Harper stated, I was angered and saddened to hear of last night's horrific shooting at the Parti Québécois event at Metropolis. It is a tragic day when an exercise of democracy is met with an act of violence. On behalf of all Canadians, I offer my deepest condolences to the family and friends of the victim and wish the person injured a swift and complete recovery. This atrocious act will not be tolerated, and such violence has no place in Canada. Canadians can rest assured that the perpetrator of last night's events will face the full force of the law. On September 10, 2012, Denis Blanchette was laid to rest in a civic funeral attended by people with fame and power. These types of funerals are normally reserved for politicians and the elite. On one side of the church sat Premier-designate Pauline Marois and a number of famous politicians. On the other side, relatives and friends of Denis Blanchette, some of them still in their work clothes. The following is from a National Post article that covered the funeral. In his eulogy, a close friend suggested that Blanchette's courage might have prevented a bigger bloodbath. Blanchette was in back of the club when the shooter entered, and some witnesses have suggested he might have obstructed him. Here is a quote from the eulogy. You left through the big door, buddy, true to yourself. You thought of others, not yourself. Au revoir, my brother. I love you. And of course now the big door is the reference to the large door at the back of theaters, which is used by stagehands. A security perimeter of nearly a full city block was erected outside a church in East End, Montreal. A crowd of onlookers gathered to pay their respects. In his sermon, the priest presiding over the Roman Catholic Mass asked everyone to pray for the other shooting victim, Dave Courage. He also asked churchgoers to pray for everyone impacted by the event. As guests entered the church, a violinist greeted them with sorrowful songs, including the Beatles' Yesterday. A framed photo of Blanchette was on a stand in front of the altar, and the flag at the Quebec legislature flew at half-mast. Tributes also came in other ways. One of Denis Blanchette's friends, Jonathan Dubé, was interviewed at the courthouse during the trial. 
He has several tattoos, including a new one on his arm. It's a wrench with a date inscribed in the handle. 40912, the day Blanchette was killed. Jonathan Dubay said that the wrench is a symbol for him and his colleagues. Quote, we always have it on us. We use it for everything. Three other backstage workers, including Dubay, got the same tattoo in memory of Blanchette. But the pain and scars of this event live on to this day. In the spring of 2022, several stagehands who were impacted by the events of that night filed a lawsuit against the Quebec Provincial Police and the Montreal City Police. In the lawsuit, they claimed that the police did not provide adequate security that night. These four technicians are seeking $125,000 each in the lawsuit, plus $100,000 each in punitive damages. During this civil trial, the plaintiffs forced the provincial police of Quebec to admit that they didn't take other threats that day against the Parti Québécois leader seriously, and they left the outside security up to the Montreal police. During this trial, it was also disclosed that the provincial police kept its own report on the shooting secret for an entire decade. There were also major issues with communication between the two police departments. Another problem was that there was no formal security plan between the two police forces as to who was in charge of what that night. In fact, the Montreal police presence was so minimal that even Henry Bain said during his trial that he was surprised there was so little security. Closing arguments in the civil trial ended in May of 2022. The verdict in this civil case has not yet been disclosed. For those wondering about Pauline Marois, well, her leadership was short-lived. Her party was defeated 19 months later in the 2014 Quebec general election. Marois was personally defeated in her own riding and announced her resignation as party leader. Her electoral defeat marked the shortest stay of any Quebec provincial government since the Canadian Confederation and the lowest showing for her party since its first general election in 1970. So Henry Bain murdered Denis Blanchette over an elected government that only lasted 19 months. It just seems so incredibly tragic that a person lost their life and many others had their lives permanently altered over an elected government that didn't even last for two years. We hope this incident will be the last time that political violence will take the lives of Canadians. We would like to thank you for joining us for this episode of True North True Crime. We'll be back soon with a new episode. So until then, stay safe, everyone. Stay safe. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.